What I learned is God talks to non-believers as well as believers. I came to, it was just like he was laying in bed right next to me. This is how loud the sound was. He said, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. That scared me enough that that moment I turned over, I picked up the phone and I called the care unit. And it wasn't until I was in the care unit that I made God become real to me. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today in St. George, Utah, at Solomon's Porch Foursquare Fellowship with Pastor Jimmy Keston and his wife, co-founder of this ministry, Pastor Rickine Keston. Thank you both for speaking with me today in good faith. It's great to be with you this morning. We're actually meeting in your church, which I love that we got to do that after a worship service this morning. It's a beautiful place here in St. George. I hope if people are coming through, they'll stop and visit. And eventually, one of the things I want to talk about is your wonderful Sunday feast, a ministry you do for folks who might need additional food or help. But I wonder if I could just talk to you, Pastor Jimmy, because I just heard you do it in service. Someone asked, what is the Foursquare Movement? We're affiliated with the International Foursquare Movement. We're coming up on our 100th anniversary as a a church movement. It was founded by a a female evangelist in the early 1900s, long before it was common to have female ministers, even in denominational churches, certainly, um, even in the early non-denominational movement. She was kind of an anomaly of her, of her time. She was a very charismatic uh, speaker, kind of cutting age. One day she actually rode a Harley Davidson down the center row of the church, the center aisle, got off and then preached a sermon. That was the kind of This is uh, Amy Semple Amy McPherson. Semple McPherson is her name. And she started out after being widowed in China on a missions trip from her first husband. Uh, she became part of a traveling evangelist group that did tent meetings all over the country in the days of dirt roads and long before the highways and a Model A Ford going from town to town, and they eventually settled in Southern California where Angelus Temple was built in the 1920s, and the Bible College, the training center, was set up to train uh, missionaries. It was founded as an interdenominational, worldwide missions outreach that eventually coalesced into a movement of like-minded churches to bring the gospel to the world uh, with the desire to see the Great Commission fulfilled to about 170 countries? We're, yeah, like we're in well over 150 nations. Some of them we can't even mention because it's not really legal to preach the gospel in those countries. But there are several countries that we're very active in since the early days of the movement. There were people going to China. Of course, uh, Sister Amy had uh, a real heart for the Chinese people, having ministered there early mm. in her career. Uh, South America, Africa, really all over the world. And uh, Foursquare Missions and Foursquare Disaster Relief. I, I like to say, you know, we have a very wonderful partnership with the LDS Church here in Utah. And one of the things that we've come to to find out, I've always said you can always tell uh, the Foursquare Disaster Relief Workers or LDS Humanitarian Services when you're at a natural disaster site because they're the two groups not looking for television cameras. 
They're the ones, they're the ones looking for people to help. Yeah. And so we share that common idea of being the hands and feet of Jesus to help those in need. And that started with feeding people in those services at Angelus Temple during the Great Depression from the of very the beginning. 1930s. Yeah. That's right. During the Great Depression in the early years of Angelus Temple, Foursquare Church fed more people than the state of California. Mm. It was a natural thing for us to continue that kind of work, to meet people at their point of need. We believe that uh, people are not going to care how much you know unless they know how much you care. And so we try to meet people at their point of need. And through that, which we do here at Solomon's Porch, through our Friday food pantry and our Sunday feast, we meet people at their point of need and then build relationship, which allows us to talk to them about our Lord. Pastor Rickeen, I wonder if you would tell me there's the logo on the front of the church, on the website, and in fact, on various shirts I've seen here today. Yeah, I do those. You did? That's beautiful. Tell me about what the four squares of the four square movement are. Yep, the cross, the bird, the cup, and the crown. So the soon coming king, the savior, the cup is the blood, and then the soon coming king is our crown. He's our savior. He's the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. Yep. He is our healer, and he is our soon coming king. Those are the, the four squares. Four square got its name from the description of the temple in the New Jerusalem being four square, even on each side. Mm. It also speaks to uh, what is one of our foundational principles in teaching the Bible, which is what it, it, we must keep the entirety of the Bible in balance, not lifting any part of the Word of God above any other portion, but keep all of the Word of God balanced and without extremes of fanaticism, so that balanced approach is part of that and represented in that logo. Did you grow up in a church or in this tradition? No, I didn't. <laughs> Actually, um, my mom was atheist, and so she never took us to church. The first time I remember actually going to a church, I don't even know what kind of church it was, it's just a little building church with, you know, a steeple. And I remember going down when I was like five or six years old, and they were having a raffle that day, and so they gave me a ticket, and some little lady took me in towards the back of the church so I wouldn't be disruptive or anything, and I sat through the service. Didn't know what was going on or anything, but I sat there. And then they called my number on the ticket. I was so thrilled, and it was a cross. <laughs> that was my first experience with church, but as growing up, my mom was an alcoholic drug addict, and I had 11 stepfathers growing up, so there was no stability in my life. And so my life kind of went the same way with drugs and alcohol. And then when I got clean and sober back in 1984, that's when I turned my life over to God and I started developing a personal relationship with Him. It was no church. It was developing what my was it, What was it in that moment that made you reach out? Well... Or was it the only choice? Okay, so what I learned is God talks to non-believers as well as believers. And I came to, I always say I came to, from a, an alcoholic night. And he told me, it was just like I was laying in bed. It, would, it was just like he was laying in bed right next to me. This is how loud the, the, the sound was. He said, if you don't stop drinking, you will go into um, uh, what they call a shuffle um, or you're going to die. One of those two. You will be mentally for the rest of your life or you're going to die. 
that scared me enough that that moment I turned over, I picked up the phone and I called the care unit and it was Christmas Eve Eve. And they said, well, we can't get you until, you know, the first of the year. And I said, if I, if I don't um, come in, I'm going to die. And I was real serious about it because I couldn't go a day without drinking. Mm. And, um, and But so, you knew that was a message from God? I knew it was. I didn't believe in God then. But I knew that it had to be him because nobody else, nobody else is going to tell me to do something like that. You know, God is good and he will always tell us what is the right thing, not drive us to the things that we shouldn't be doing. But then and, you acted on that. But then I acted on it in faith. And it wasn't until I was in the care unit that I made God become real to me by, I'm a very kind of upfront in your face. And it's like, okay, um, if you're real, I was in the care unit. It was like, I don't know, three or four days in or something. They started talking about God. And if you don't have a God, you need to, you know, go back to your room and think about it and or whatever, use the light bulb for God until you find one. I'm like, but the light bulb will burn out, you know, then what do I do, right? So um, I went back to my room and I hit my knees because I thought that's what you do, right, when you talk to God. And I'm like, if, uh, if you're real, you're going to do three things for me to prove that you're real. Tomorrow, there was somebody in the care unit that needed um, insurance in order to stay and she hadn't been approved. And then there was another one that wanted to stay, but it's a six-week program. She had nobody to watch her kids. And then there, there was one girl whose mother was a channeler, mm-hmm. and um, they didn't believe in God, but they believed in channeling. And she was very confused about religious and religion and everything. So the next day, I got up in the morning. I'm sitting there at breakfast, and this guy or this girl comes running, and she says, "Hey, hey, I got a call from my insurance company, and they're going to let me stay, and they're going to pay for everything." I'm so excited. I'm like. I looked up very sarcastically, and I'm like, that's one, <laughs> right? And so then at lunchtime, I'm sitting there, and this all happened at, at lunchtime. The girl comes running, and she says, my mom's going to take my kids for the six weeks. So I found somebody to watch my kids, and I'm looking up, and I'm feeling, you know, feeling it in my, my chest, my heart, my stomach, everything, and I'm like, well, that's two. And I actually said, as I said, but you'll never get the last one. We were at the end of the night, the last meeting, everybody's getting ready to like, you know, shut down for the night. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, we got two minutes left to this meeting's over. And all of a sudden she raises her hand and stands up and says, you know, I don't know who this God is that you guys are talking about, but I want that relationship with him. I don't want what my mom has been trying to hand me. She says, I want what you guys have. And I was just like, oh man, am I in trouble now? Because I realized that all of a sudden, he's real. And he did these three things to show me that he was real. I went back to my room, and I lit a candle the first time. Got down on my knees, lit a candle again, and I looked up and I just said to him, I says, I am so sorry for everything that I've done. And I'm so sorry for everything I'm going to do, because I'm not perfect. And that's how my relationship with God started. Well, it was real. But the other thing is, I can't help noticing that you looked for three things for three other people other than yourself. Exactly. That's such an important part of her story. When she wanted God to show, as a pre-believer, not yet a Christian, when she wanted God to make himself real, it was about help those people who need help as opposed to help me. And I mean, that just speaks to 
her heart. And yeah, she well, that, that says something to me about you. And, and now that <laughs> night I just asked God, I said, please take the desire to drink and to drug away from me so that, you know, you don't have that Jones, you don't have desire, you don't want it anymore. The next day I got up, I've never wanted another drink of alcohol since, ever. Never have I had the desire or even thought of like, I wonder what it would be like. I wonder if I got nothing like that. He completely took it away. That is a beautiful miracle. Yeah. Very much. She certainly is. <laughs> and Pastor Jimmy, in, did you grow up in a church? I actually, I grew up Jewish and uh, walked away from the faith of my youth as a, as a young teen, 13, shortly after my uh, bar mitzvah, my confirmation. Through all of my teens and a good chunk of my early adult life, I was... Oh, probably at best an agnostic. I still believe that God existed, but my basic attitude was, well, if if he stays out of my way, I'll stay out of his, and we can probably coexist (laughs) in the universe together. I, I mean, that was kind of the arrogant approach I had to life, and I also found myself with problems with alcohol and drugs, and make a a long story short, I met uh, Rakeen, and she scared the heck out of me because she had a life that was on track and why I scared him was because I didn't need him I wanted him in my life I didn't need him in my life Mm. and we dated a little bit and didn't and then got back together we married I didn't become a Christian for eight more years she prayed for me behind my back as I was on a slow and long journey seeking spiritual truth I had never read the Bible before I came from a conservative Jewish upbringing where it was all done in Hebrew in synagogue. So I'd never really read the Bible, certainly not in English. I was very hostile towards Christians. You know, I've I've said it many times as a pastor over the last 20 years, but consistently one truth that I know and live that every survey ever uh, taken on why people reject Christianity, number one on the list is always the Christians they've met. And that, for the most part, was my experience until I met Rakeen. I had not really met very many Christians that actually lived their faith without hypocrisy. And so I was very hostile towards Christianity. But to make a long story short, about eight years into that journey, looking for faith in a Bible study that she had been attending with a bunch of uh, bikers, that have had left that lifestyle of uh, hardcore Harley riders and now we're riding for Christ. And one day I went to that Bible study, they asked me to read a verse and I got hit by the power of the Holy Spirit like mm. nothing I had ever experienced before. She bought me a Bible. I went to church for the first time that weekend and responded to, to altar call, I went home and we were originally gonna read the Bible together, but that lasted about 15 minutes because, you know, because I just needed to go, 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 and we had to read it slow. I read from Genesis to Revelation the entirety of the Bible in barely four weeks while working 70 plus hours a week in my spare time, read it cover to cover for the first time, and basically understood everything I had read. I was jealous because I wanted to know everything I could know about God, but I didn't have that fire to read the word like God put in him. And I remember feeling jealous and envious, I guess is a good word. And then it was brought to my attention that God has different gifts for different people. And his gift was to be a pastor. 
And to have that gift, then God put that fire in him to learn because we were going to read it together. And then he'd be reading it out loud to me and I'd fall asleep. And the next night we come, I'd fall asleep again. And he looked at me and he says, I cannot read the Bible with you anymore because I have got to get going. <laughs> reading out loud to her, I was having to read it slower so she could understand. And I just needed to go. And it's like, I did it two or three more times, I think within the first couple of months, that a few, few months that I had been a Christian, I read through the Bible start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, at least three or four times, each time faster than the time before. Within With understanding. And, and understanding every bit of it. I've never been one of those person who could give you chapter and verse, but I know what's there and I understood and could explain it in plain English within a couple of months of being a Christian, I was the one people were asking questions in our circle of friends in the motorcycle ministry that we became a part of, reaching out to bikers and, and other folks. I was the one that they were coming and asking guys who had been walking with the Lord for 20 plus years were coming to me to ask questions about the Bible. Within months after that, I was the one that they were throwing out there on rallies to, to preach the word. You know, eventually God let it let me know that uh, he had a plan for me. Woke me up at four o'clock in the morning and sent me to a couple of Bible verses and basically told me that uh, he had designed me, that one day I was going to, to need to step away from the life that we had built and, and pastor a church. And, and I didn't know how that was going to happen, but shortly after that, within a span of a few weeks, my dad, my pastor, and our dog died within about 60 days of each other. And my pastor's son took over the church and one of the first things he did was set up a distance learning ability to go to Bible college without having to go to Bible college. And so I started studying and within a, a year or so after that, I received my first credentials as a pastor. That was more than 20 years ago. Mm. We were on staff for about eight years at Great our Fine. church at Grapevine Fellowship in Las Vegas. And then one day God said, remember I told you way in the future sometime you would need to um, pastor a church for me. The future's now. Okay. All the times when, when we'd be on our motorcycles and we'd be riding like through St. George, we'd always go home and he says, I would never want to have a church in Utah. It would just be <laughs> too difficult to plant a church there. It's beautiful, but it'd be too difficult. People would ask me, where do you think you would want to pastor? I said, a small town would be great. Probably had enough of big cities, you know, someplace near camping, fishing, you know, outdoor, where uh, outdoor recreation is plentiful. And they, they'd say, how about Utah? And I went, oh no, that'd be way, way too much work. And, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, I had no idea where we were going, but I had been on a very good job for a very long time. And God kind of pulled that out from under us. I uh, hadn't told her I had been given advance notice that we were going to lose our job. And shortly after that, God told me, I'm taking that away because I know you would never do what I have for you to do if you had to walk away from that on your own. So I went to my pastor and I said, I don't know what to do. God's telling me that I've got about two or three weeks left and then I'm going to be unemployed and they're going to give me a nice severance package. But God's saying that we're supposed to pastor a church. I got no idea what that looks like. And oh, by the way, I haven't told Rakeen any of this yet. <laughs> and my pastor looked at me and with the most sincerity I think he could muster, he said, I am really glad I'm not you. <laughs> but you need to go home and tell. Well, this must have been a special comforting skill he had learned in, in past. Yeah, I'm really glad I'm not you. But he said, then he said, you've got to go tell 
Rakeen that what's going on. Um, and I expected her to be like really nervous and upset because, you know, uh, um, you know, that was not her uh, strong suit in taking that kind of change in financial insecurity uh, into account. And I walked home and I told her everything that was going on and she didn't say a word. And we were standing at the counter of our home that we had just not that long before finished building out and and i told her all this and i i said i have no idea where we're supposed to go what we're supposed to do but we're supposed to do it she did not say a word she turned around walked straight into her office and jumped on the computer and i'm sitting in our like dining room kind of watching her because i could see our office from where that counter was and she's just furiously on the computer and then all of a sudden she just stopped now i don't know what's going on she hasn't said anything i don't know if she's looking for divorce lawyers i don't know if she's you know i don't know what she's doing but all of a sudden she just stopped and she sat back and like a calm came over her and then she went back to the computer for a moment and then she came out and said i know where we're going and I went, first tell me what the heck all that was. She said, well, the first thing I did is I went in there and I went, looked all over the country for every place I wanted to live. And then I stopped and I asked God where he wanted us to go. And the very first thing that came up on the computer issue is there was a four square church in Cedar City. There was a four square church in Mesquite. There was no four square church in St. George. She said, we're supposed to go to St. George. And I knew at that instant that was a word from the Lord. And I called my pastor and I said, it's St. George. And he said, you have no idea how true that is. He called the district supervisor for the Foursquare Church, who immediately said, that is absolutely true. Jimmy and Rakeen need to plant Pioneer St. George. The process to Pioneer Church normally takes a couple of years. We completed the entire thing in less than four months, and yeah. in less than six, we were living here yeah. in St. George. That's how fast Not the whole thing went. Soul. Just got here, the three of us. Our daughter was about three years old, so we said it was her and I and a plan God gave us and our three-year-old, you know, head of evangelism. You mentioned different gifts for different people. Yeah. And there are different ministries that people feel called to. In your particular fellowship here, Solomon's Porch, you have a Sunday feast yeah. where every Sunday... Tell me about what brought that into your hearts, into your lives, and how that works in the community. It, it started organically and accidentally. We, from the very early days of our starting the church, had our Sunday meal together as church family, even when we were just a Bible study in our living room. You know, we came from, we were on staff, we said with Grapevine for years, and every single Sunday, the pastor and his wife and the staff, the senior staff, we would, after the morning services, we would all go to lunch together, yeah. and then we would relax and then come back for the evening services. We had the same six to 10 people had lunch together every single Sunday for all those years, and we were very close and we loved the experience. But the one thing I noticed when we got here and it was all about what does God want us to do, I had told her, I don't wanna have lunch with the same yeah. six people for the rest of our time. I wanna be able to have lunch with the congregation and we could see early on that we had single moms with kids who right. couldn't afford to go to lunch. And so we started having our, our lunch together as church family. And it started as a potluck and- Grew to a potluck, but it ended up 
a lot of times I found myself, I was the only one cooking. So if I cooked the main meal and nobody was bringing a side, I'd go downstairs and I'd start opening cans or do something, you know, to create more food. And that went on for about a month and a half, two months. And I was standing at the, in our church and it's elongated church. And I was standing on one side of the building and the Sharon Care used to be here in town. It was a homeless shelter. And they used to kick the residents out in the morning so they could clean the facility, and then they would come back in the evening. So they had no place to go all day, and they had no food. And we realized that there was a need for food because they used to do food on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the soup kitchen. And there was nothing for the people to go for Saturday, Saturday. They were going that without food. So anyways, we, I was standing on the side, and it was like I said to God, one of these things again. I like this with God. It's like, okay, God, I, we cannot afford to continue out of pocket feeding people. So if you want me to continue doing this, you're going to have to do two things. <laughs> Here we go with my demands <laughs> you again. You and your list. Yeah. yeah. Here's my two things. One, my legs were killing me because I am a sit-down at a desk person on my full-time job. And it's like I was on my feet all of a sudden for 8 to 10 hours a day with church and then downstairs cooking all the food. I'm like, you've got to take the pain out of my legs, and you're going to have to start supplying the food. If you do that, I'll continue cooking as long as people continue coming. The next week, I was in Walmart, and God told me, go down the shoe aisle, and there was some, I don't know, spirit shoes or some kind of shoes there. They were like 30 bucks, which I never pay 30 bucks for a pair of shoes. But anyways, he says, get the shoes, and I'm like, okay, I got them. And then that same week, Jimmy was at a meeting and met Linda from the Utah Food Bank, and he was telling her a story, and she says, well, come over to the food bank and get some food. And so we got hooked up with her, and we used to go get food from her, and I would just shop in the food bank at their facility, and then they started bringing food to the church, like a little pallet of things that she thought I might like. And then after we started doing that for a while, then we ended up doing the Friday pantry. But God fulfilled those two things like within a week. So that's when I knew that is one of the things that God wanted me to do. One of my gifts is organization, and I'm an excellent cook according, I don't eat meat, I'm a vegetarian, but according to everybody that comes, my food is always really good. People have said I'd stand in line if you would write a cookbook. Problem (laughs) is, I just throw things together. I don't measure anything, so I couldn't write one. But that's kind of how we ended up doing it. This was never something we envisioned Mm -hmm. would be the cornerstone of our ability to outreach to this community. But we noticed that there were more people coming to lunch than there were coming to church. And the food bank stepped in and we are the only uh, hot meal still served to that community and you know that's grown to a lot of senior citizens and just people who are kind of lonely these days we have we still have you know a percentage of homeless people mostly who aren't able to get into the local shelter that come for assistance and the food bank asked if we'd be willing to add a a, a pantry so our Friday food pantry does over 70 emergency supplemental food boxes every Friday to needy families. These days, we feed at the Sunday feast anywhere from usually 50 to 80 elderly, low-income, and, and homeless individuals. At its peak, when we were downtown, that number was way over 100 to 120 every people week. every single week. Mm. 
and oh. and, it, and it was so funny in the very beginning when we started doing this there was like maybe 10 or 15 guys that were coming and they wouldn't tell anybody about the food because they were afraid we were going to run out or we'd stop doing it if a lot of people and i told them i said no bring people bring people and more <laughs> the merrier but there was like there'd be 125 people there'd be a line out the door waiting to eat so it's sad to think that in this country the food that we put out on Friday, which is over 70 boxes that feed, what, 20,000 people over the course of a year, that that much food, and just on Fridays, that that much food is being thrown away. Because that's where it's coming Because from. that's where it would go. They we would get, go wow. from the grocery stores. They would normally just throw it in the dumpster, right? right? But because Utah Food Bank does this, we're able to, and it's all good food. It's I mean, that's being, where I get all the food that I cook with on Sunday. It's what's being rotated off the shelves uh, from the grocery stores. That's our primary source of food. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you've probably heard of them. They uh, got wind of what we were doing. And several years ago, contingent came down from Salt Lake City and went through everything that we were doing in these ministries. We were officially declared a good work by the church and that good work status Not led that to God hadn't already declared that right. to you. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, that's an important distinction for LDS humanitarian services yeah. because what it led to when we were declared a good work was that we receive an annual grant from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints a humanitarian relief that we use at the bishop's storehouse which supplements our food supply particularly for the sunday feast it's also like this last friday the bishop's storehouse had a huge overstock of milk and eggs that would have gone bad if it just sat there so they call us up and we went and picked it up and everybody on friday got a couple of gallons of milk and uh, two or three dozen eggs uh, along with the other groceries that went into the boxes so it's been a wonderful partnership it's been a wonderful way for us to outreach to the community to provide opportunities for people to volunteer we have a contingent of service missionaries that help at the friday pantry we have families who periodically help out on sundays as a way to teach their kids service and it's been it's been a wonderful way of partnershipping with this community we're also in partnership with the Just Serve site, and um, we certainly get that. We're also connected as a authorized site with um, uh, Washington County for uh, those people who are given community service yeah. instead of a jail time when they run afoul of the law or instead of a fine for traffic violations. Mm-hmm. And we're one of the only places that have that availability like on a Sunday or weekend, so people who have you know, full-time jobs during the week are still able to get their community service hours in. And so it's really become a community-wide effort of groups that periodically come and help out. First of all, thank you for doing this, for heeding that call and watching things fall into place and being people who were open to letting that happen. Uh, I'm speaking with pastors Jimmy and Rakeen Keston of Solomon's Porch Foursquare Fellowship. We'll have their website listed on our webpage. Thank you both for sharing your testimony of turning points and connecting with God. That's inspiring to me, and I think it's going to... Some of us may try making some lists and going to God with them, maybe being a little bolder than we have been, especially in the interest of... I'm I'm really quite touched that your very first requests to God were for other people. You know, this is something that I think he put in my heart very young, is that he's the only one I need to rely on. Mm. I don't need a husband to rely on. I don't need kids to rely on or anybody else, but he's the only one that I, he's my provider. 
And he didn't come, Jesus, he didn't send his son to be served. He sent his son to serve and to teach others to serve. And I truly believe that if we were all serving one another, this country or this world would not be in the shape that it's in. It would not be in the place. It's exactly where God knows it's going. But I believe that God puts in all of us a servant's heart. It's just that I think a lot of people, we've had, I had a servant that used to come and volunteer. And she says, one of the reasons I wanted to volunteer is because I didn't know how to talk to homeless people. And she says, what I learned coming and volunteering is they're just like us. Yes. They're just. People are people. Are people. Yeah. When we live a life of service and helping others, primarily first and foremost, we came here to reach the lost, those who had no church connection. I asked God why he was sending me to the most churched community possibly in the United States of America with a very active major church that meets most of the population needs. And it's like, why are you sending us there? And he says, we want you to love people that aren't being reached into the kingdom of God. Go love people into the kingdom. And I said, well, I, I'm no good at that. I'm the debate guy. I'm the guy who can, you know, argue you in the submission. I said, I'm, I'm no good at loving people. He said, that's why I'm sending you because you'll have to rely on me. <laughs> and we don't feed people because of some desire to serve food. This has always been about reaching people that have not been touched with the love of Christ, right? So it's through that food that we build relationship, meeting people at their point of need. And then it's always been about connecting those people with resources to change their life situation, that they can see that God cares about them. And you know, I heard a quote once, and I'm struggling to remember who it was, that said, there are people in the world so hungry that the only way they can hear God is through a loaf of bread. Amen. That initial need, and then meeting spiritual needs beyond. It's, it's like I said earlier, it, you know, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. Mm. When they know that we care about them, that we'll meet them at their point of need, then you're able to build relationship. They come out of their shell. There was a guy that was coming to eat on Sundays. He was very angry. And so he would just get his food and he'd sit there with his head down and he'd eat, just shoving the food in. And God told me to ask these only like 10 or 15 men that were showing up, are any of you craving anything that you haven't had in a long time that you would like to have? And one guy spoke up and he says, yeah, macaroni and cheese, I haven't had that in the longest time. So the next Sunday, I made macaroni and cheese. And he was so surprised and so taken back that I would do that. So then I noticed this guy all the time, and he wouldn't talk to anybody. So I went over and sat down, and I said, is the food okay? And he says, yeah. And I said, is there anything that you're craving? And he gives out this big belly laugh, and he says, yeah, steak and shrimp. And he just laughed and put his head down. And so I told Jimmy, I said, um, we need to go out of pocket and go get some shrimp. I stockpile meat and when I get it off of the food truck till I have enough to do a meal. So I had stockpiled some steaks and stuff. And so we went and got some shrimps. And the next week I made steak and broccoli stir fry with shrimp fried rice. And so we had already started and I was wondering like, where the heck is he? And I went outside and he was standing up at the top of the stairs. And I looked down and said, are you coming in to eat? We're having steak and shrimp this week. And his eyes just got so big and he came downstairs and he ate and he kind of sat up a little bit and he didn't say anything. And then I would notice each week that his head was coming up further and he started talking to people. But that day when he was having his steak and shrimp, I just went over to him and I says, it's amazing what will happen when you just ask somebody. 
it's amazing what, if you need something or if you want something, just ask. He didn't say anything, didn't really respond. And um, about, I'd say it was about four months later, we were cleaning up and he was pacing back and forth in the back of the fellowship hall. And we were almost done, ready to go. And I'm like, are you okay? And he says, he says, I just have to tell you something. And I'm like, well, what? And I, I was thinking, you know, maybe he's sick or something. He says, I just want to tell you how much you meant to me. And he says, I'm moving back up north. I called and asked for a job and a place to live, and they gave me one. And I'm like, good for you. Wow. So he'd been living on, he'd been living on the street more than a decade, just had given up. Yeah. And so many of the people that we've encountered, they get so frustrated with the red tape and, and that they just kind of give up. And her love and compassion for people causes them to open up. And then we were, some of them were able to connect to resources. Some of them, like this gentleman, became motivated. I had a reporter ask me one time when we were at the old place, she says, well, what do you get out of this? And I looked at her and I thought for a second, first of all, I've never had anybody ask me that question. And I looked at her and the first thing that came out of my mouth was nothing. You know, like, nothing? Why? I mean, we don't get paid for any of our positions at the church or anything that we do here. We're all volunteers. We're all volunteers. She's like, I mean, don't you get something out of it? And I'm like, well, yeah, I get the joy of being able to serve them. That's what I get, you know. From being able to do this, not a lot of times you get to see what the fruits are of what you've done but every once in a while you get those little golden nuggets that like that guy that called and asked for a job and like few other people that that have been through what we love about this and as she mentioned we're both volunteers we don't take anything from the church we both work full-time jobs in the community we feed here at the sunday feast and the friday pantry nearly twenty thousand meals or individuals every single year without a single penny of government money and no paid staff. Everything we do is entirely volunteer staff, no government money. All of our needs are privately funded. The food comes from the Utah Food Bank and the LDS Humanitarian Services Grant. All of our other non-food expenses are covered by private donations from people in the community who have come alongside us because maybe they can't be here in person to volunteer because of their schedule, but they can help out with a, a, a monthly donation or a quarterly donation or an annual donation to help cover those costs that we originally did out of pocket just to make this going. It was our way, one of the ways that we were able to give back for her, how God's blessed us. But now it really speaks to what a community can do when they pull together, not worried about who gets the credit, but yeah. about meeting the need and doing it the way I believe it was designed to. You know, the Bible informs us that it is the job of the church to care for the people that can't care for themselves. I mean, this was a hallmark of the first century church. Yes, It was the church that Jesus built. They assigned people to make sure that the widows and those in need were taken care of from the early days of the church. It was the church's business to meet the needs of the community in whatever way that they were possible. And we count ourselves a church in the pattern of the first century church to what Jesus intended Christianity to be, which is about caring for each other and about loving people into the kingdom. And it's allowed us to build these partnerships. You know, when people, when our clients on Friday, 
show up, people who, for some, it's the first time they've ever needed assistance, especially in 2020, when more people have needed a little helping hand than ever before. And they come here and they see uh, Solomon's Porch, people side by side with missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a women's group from, from this church or from that church and a bunch of people just working together across faith lines, not worried about what we don't see the same way, but focused on the things we have in common, which is a love for this community and its people. That is building extraordinary goodwill within the community. It's helping people. It's also been a great blessing for these missionaries, some of whom it's the first time some of these clients have ever met an LDS missionary who wasn't knocking on their door with literature for them. And here they're just trying to help them out. And it's just been such a blessing to, to see that build out of her feeding some people. It's a beautiful ministry. I love how it's incorporating so many aspects of the community, so many different people, blessing lots of people. I think I know what you get out of it. <laughs> I think our listeners do too. Thank you both for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you. It's our joy. Yes. Thank, thank you. you for joining us today. That's our time for today. Thanks to pastors Jimmy and Ricky Keston for generously sharing their stories and their faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and spread the word. Leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. And in fact, we'd love to know where you listen from. Email us at InGoodFaith at BYU.edu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.